Open up your Bibles, Genesis 34. Genesis 34 is um, a unique, it, it's a unique chapter in the context of the story. And so keep in mind that while we're reading the story of this family, Abraham and his descendants, that story is a much larger story. You know, a much larger story, which is God's plan to redeem all mankind back to himself through the descendants of one man. And so Genesis 3, if you go back in your, th- in your mind, think about it. Genesis 3, you know, it says there will be one who will crush the enemy of God and his creation. And in doing so, he will suffer an injury, the bruising of his heel. And so Genesis is setting the stage for that one who will suffer that injury while crushing the enemy. And in Genesis, so it, it introduces this redeemer of all mankind. And, and it says he's coming. And then and to, to get to that redeemer, it starts with the story of one family. And that one family becomes a nation. And God has set them out as being people that he is going to use. And, he, and that the one, that redeemer, will come. He will come. He will redeem man from the sin of the garden, from the separation that sin brought in between God and man. And Genesis introduces his ancestors to us, Abraham. So God has promised through Abraham's family that he will bless all nations and their inhabitants and that he will give Abraham land and a great nation. And, as, and he describes as being as many as the sand on the shore or as, if you, as many as the sky, the stars in the sky that will come from him. He says, if you could count the stars, that is your descendants. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are just characters in a much larger story. This story is just, uh, their story is just a chapter in a much larger book. They're just one of many. And so you see up here on this genealogy here, you see the, the story started with Adam, but then it really picks up steam. And Abraham is the one that God selects and says, it is you that I will bless and I will use you and your descendants to bring up Jesus Christ, who would be the Redeemer, the one that will crush the head of the serpent and will redeem mankind back to me. You see in the context of that giant genealogy that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are just small cogs. They're smaller stories. Granted, they're pivotal. They're foundational. Absolutely foundational. But they're just part of the bigger story of God redeeming mankind back to himself. So our text today seems kind of hard to fit into that larger story somewhat. I've always said that I don't want to skim over parts that are either awkward, circumcision, or that are, you know, or that are hard to figure out, five pages of genealogies. I've said I don't want us to skip over those things because they're there for a reason. And we have some more genealogies coming up that we're going to answer that question again. And so in the context of our study in the book, I don't want to study the easy stuff and just go to the stories you know. I want us to study the text as it is and draw meaning from it and figure out how all the pieces go together. And so it is like a very large jigsaw puzzle. And like we have all these pieces and we want to know why the pieces go together. We want to know why that picture or that story is in the bigger story. Because God is intentional. It's not just like, oh, by the way, I wanted to tell you about this. There's more to it than that. You should be in in Genesis 34 then. I want to read the first five verses to you. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. 
He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. This is just one more harsh, harsh story in this family's storyline, you know. Just time after again, there is just something that is harsh and hard to swallow and difficult and just unbelievable. But here is another story here in this family line. To, to catch us up here, Dinah, she is, she is an eligible woman. She is of marrying age. That means two things in this context for this culture. She's a virgin. For any woman who was not a virgin was considered practically impossible to find a husband for. She was defiled. You know, and it would be impossible to find a husband for. So some commentators even said about this. One commentator suggested that um, Shechem loved her and wanted her enough that he defiled her so no one else would take her. Now, that's a whole lot of like thinking in Shechem's head, maybe, to get there, to, tell you, to, to determine that. But it could be a theory that would be possible. He knew no one else would take her, so she would be his. But that is speculation. So she's a virgin, and then secondly, she's probably only in her mid-teens. A marrying woman, a marrying age, could be as young as 12, but would probably be somewhere in the mid-teens range, 15 or so. In this culture, here she is. She is culturally really in the right place for marriage. Now, you notice this phrase that they use there in verse 1, in verse one daughters of the land. Think about this. That's the same exact phrase that's used in, in Genesis 27:46 where Rebecca says, the daughters of the land. She uses that same phrase. And she uses that phrase in this context. If you go back, you, don't, you can go if you want to look at it, you can, but this is the context of it. She has just coached her favorite son through the deceptive means of lying and deceiving the father and a brother to gain what was not theirs. She has just completed that coaching. And now what she's done is, is she's made the other son, Esau, so angry he's threatened to murder Jacob. So her ploy to get Jacob out of the area and to save his life is this. I don't want my son marrying any daughters of this land, for they are not right. They are not of our tribe, our clan, our culture. They were Canaanites. They worshipped other gods. The context here identifies who these men were, so it identifies that these people were not appropriate people to be intermarrying with, the daughters or the men of this land. One commentator suggests that this is pretty unusual behavior that an eligible woman would go out like this unaccompanied. So he even suggested perhaps in the context of this family and their contentious nature and the ongoing problems that was in this family that perhaps she was even doing this somewhat out of rebellion. Again, just a thought, but it's an interesting thought. Verse 3, it says this. He says, he loved the girl. Now, this is interesting because there are many commentators who said that he didn't love her. He lusted after her. He wanted her as property. If you look at verse 4, it would even lean toward thinking that way because he says, get me. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not like he's writing a love letter and says, Father, this woman is everything I've dreamed of. Can you please figure this out for me? It's more like, I want steak and potatoes in that woman today. You know, like a shopping list almost. 
And so it's hard to say that, that in the context of that he loved her in that way. But the thing is, though, is this phrase, he loved the girl, it comes, it's the same phrase that's used out of Genesis 2. Where in Genesis 2, it's talking about, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling with his wife. And then in Ruth 1, it's the very same phrase where Ruth says, I will not leave you. I am committed to you. I'm dedicated to you. I will not leave your side. It's the same phrase. And so it does demonstrate that this man, regardless of what he had just done, has crossed over into a true loving relationship with this girl, at least on his part of the equation. But this is so different, though, than another story of rape that we have in Scripture. Many, many, many years later, David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And he was convinced that he loved her. And then he raped her, and then he despised her. He kicked her out of the house. And the story goes that she went out screaming, saying, you cannot do this, you've defiled me, don't throw me out. Because she knew as well, there will be no one else who will touch me. You're all I have now that you've done this to me. And in that case, there was not a love relationship. It was that he despised her after he had already done that to her. Well, there is much in the story that could demand... um, the attention of the reader. I mean, if you read the whole passage, there's a lot in here. But then there's one thing for me that stands out, and it's in verse 5. And it's this. This man learns that his daughter has just been raped, and his response is silence. No response at all. And you're like going, what? What is that? Let's keep reading, all right? We're going to try and figure that out as we go further. Let's read verses 6 through 12 now. When Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him, now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not be done. Interesting note that in that passage, that's the first time that you hear in Israel. His name had just been changed in the previous chapter. And so this is the first time they're, they're, they're designated somewhat in a national kind of context as a people. You know. So this is a disgraceful thing to be done in Israel. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according to what you say, but please, but give me the girl in marriage. What's missing from this passage as I read it is any remorse, any, any kind of like coming together, and if you're a parent, you probably have done this, any kind of coming together and saying to another parent, I can't believe my child has done this. All these parents looked at their, their kids, and some of the kids looked at the parents. You know, I can't believe that my son has done this. There's no, nothing of that. As a matter of fact, in the text, there's not even a place where it says, I'm, I need to come and just apologize to you. But I'd like to work beyond that and, and come to a place of, of peace between us. There's not that at all. Hamor arrives on the, on the scene almost like a businessman seeking to strike a deal. Now, compare that to Dinah's brothers 
in verses 13 through 17. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamar with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us, in that way every male of you will be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people with you. But if you will not listen, but, but if you will not listen to us be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. And later on even, if you look into the very last verse of this chapter, it just says, should they treat our sister like a whore? While Hamor is not really upset by what's happened, these brothers are absolutely incensed. Matter of fact, if you were, you just go back to verse 7, it just says they were grieved and very angry. And notice that in that negotiation there, who's missing from it? Jacob. The father of the daughter has never spoken up at all. But the, te- but the text leads us to believe that he's there. But Jacob has not spoken up at all. Matter of fact, the Hebrew in this passage, in verse 8 and verse 17, the Hebrew in the passage is a plural of you. And, 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 and when these guys are speaking, when Hamor and Shechem are speaking, they're not speaking to Jacob about his daughter. They're speaking to the brothers about their daughter. Because you look at verse 8, Shechem longs for your daughter. That is a plural version of your, speaking to yours, not just you, Jacob. And then the same thing is true in verse 17. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter. That right there is also a plural of our daughter. And, th- and look at who says that. It's the sons who speak about their daughter. It's the sons who speak about their daughter. In this passage in verse 13, note that word right there, deceit. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 27, 35, where Isaac has to explain to Esau what has just happened. And so Isaac says to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. He's come deceitfully and taken away your blessing. Same word, same context, just connecting these dots between these two different episodes because it matters. So the agreement the brothers come up with is just wrong. There's nothing about this that could be right, should be right, or should be even suggested. Because they take the symbol of the covenant between the eternal God, the creator God, they exploit it. They're not interested in having someone be added to the congregation of believers in this creator God. They're not interested in really trying to expand their opportunities for intermarrying and buying land. They're interested in one thing, and they already have this premeditated, And so they take the covenant sign of circumcision and they say, we'll use that to gain the upper hand to get a victory in this situation. Again, this family has some warped morals. So what follows is that the men of Shechem, they agree to the idea, which again is another amazing thing. They agree to the idea to all of them to be circumcised. And on the third day, while they're still healing from the circumcision... Simeon and Levi, and most probably members of their clans, enter the city and kill every single man. And then the other brothers see the opportunity, and they enter the picture, and they loot the entire city of all the children, all the women, all the livestock, and any material possessions. 
this is not unique to this bad bunch of brothers. It's a common practice, and it, did, and it was for centuries when you, when you come into a city to take the city. The chapter in, closes with an ending that has no resolution to it. Go over to the end of the chapter 34, verse 30. Let's start there. Then Jacob, that, so what has just happened is they have just looted and murdered and killed and you know, destroyed the city. In verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Pezzarites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed and my household. And the brothers said, but should he treat our sister as a harlot, as a whore? It's really a story that comes to an end without a resolution. Because in my mind, I'm wanting to hear the father say, yeah, you're right. Or, you know what, boys? You don't really understand the way of the world yet. Take a seat and just let me take care of this for you. But there's none of that. There's no discussion at all. Matter of fact, when Jacob confronts them, it's not, a, it's, it's not out of indignation for their actions, what they've just done. It's not like, you took a bad thing and made it worse. He doesn't say that at all. He says, you know what? You've made us vulnerable here. And all the people around us will hate us now. And so he's looking at himself and like going, this is a bad thing for me. It doesn't matter what you just, how many people you just murdered, how many people you just made homeless. That's not really important. What's happened here is you've just made things bad for me. In researching the passage, it's really interesting that most commentators that I found, and, and you can ask my staff, I have a staff of Genesis books and I keep adding to it. And most of those Genesis books said, oh, by the way, verse 34 happened. And then they move on. And I'm like going, there's got to be more to this. One particular resource I have is a Jewish scholar, Rabbi, Rabbi Froman. And he does these 10 to 15 minute video clips and teachings. And then he also has hour-long teachings as well. And so I've gone to them a few times. When I went to him for this, he opened up the passage like no other Christian evangelical commentator did. And so I posted him on Facebook this week, and that's his website right there, Aleph Beta. I mean, he opened up this passage in ways that I didn't see and no one else talked about either, and I really loved. I posted this particular episode on my Facebook page if you'd like to go hear it. And if you go, wow, Tim just preached that. Yeah, you're right. I just preached that because he's a lot smarter than I am, and you don't want to settle for all I have to offer, okay? This is what he did. He said, he said compare how Hamor and Shechem propose a deal for Dinah as a wife to the same way Laban and Jacob negotiate a deal for Rachel in chapter 29. He's drawn connections and that the stories and that Shechem and Hamor and Dinah and the brothers are all in this chapter between the story of Jacob's life and going into the story of Joseph's life for a reason. And so he talks about, he draws connection that here we are, we have a father and a son and a woman and they're all being negotiated for just like they were with Laban and Rachel, and Leah, and Jacob. And then not only that, consider that the deals agreed upon is not really the deal that's agreed upon. Go back again to chapter 29. Laban says, I would love for you to have my daughter. Work for me for seven years. And the man wakes up the next day with the wrong daughter. Oh, Laban says, ah, what do you mean? This is the daughter I promised you. I promised you the older daughter. And so the same thing is true here, because here the brothers say, hey, you know what? Make a deal with us. 
Make a deal with us. If you all be circumcised, we'll go forward with this and we'll all be happy ever after. But that's not the deal they had in mind either. There was treachery involved in both deals. But then the other part of the deal is this. They say, this is how we do things. That's what Laban said when he deceived Jacob. This is how we do things. We don't marry off the older daughter before, uh, the younger daughter before we marry off the older daughter. This is how we do things. Here, now many years later, Jacob's sons are like going, hey, you know, if you want to be a part of us, this is how we do things. You have to be circumcised. This is how we do things. Here you have these connections, these themes that are running alongside of one another. But what you really have is you have Jacob's sons behaving exactly the way that Laban treated Jacob. But even before that took place, Jacob had done the same thing to his own brother. Jacob said to his brother, he went to his brother, and he deceived him, and he took what wasn't his. And Jacob came to, and, and Jacob and Laban went together, and Laban deceived Jacob. And then later on, Jacob turned the tables and didn't deceive him, but he definitely, he definitely played cards his favor. Now here are these brothers answering Hamor and Shechem, Shechem with deceit, just like the father had done and just like the grandfather had done. The sons are only doing what their father has done. I suggest that the reason that their father is not concerned with what they've done here at the end of chapter 30, their betrayal and their deceit is not concerning to him because he acts the same way. They might have done more than he did, but it's nothing to Jacob to think about. So you made a deal and you changed the deal in the middle of the thing and you took advantage of somebody. That's what we do. But you want to know what happened? You put me in vulnerable position. The story is not resolved in the way we want it to be resolved because Jacob is not concerned with what's just happened. Jacob is just concerned for his position and his reputation. But there's another theme that runs through our text that goes all the way back to Abraham. And that's the theme of a favored child. Sarah favored Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. Rebecca favored Jacob over Esau. Jacob had favorites among his children and among his wives. He wanted Rachel, but he got Leah. He wanted Joseph, but he got 11 others. Was tra- you know, think about this. The, the favorite thing, we talked about this last week. Even, even as they were coming home, after he was coming home from Laban, and he's coming to meet his brother Esau, he demonstrates the favored nature of his family there. We talked about it last week, but let's repeat it really quickly. So he's coming into a situation that, to the best of his understanding is going to probably be dangerous. And so what he does, he takes the concubines and their children and puts them out in front. So if Esau's, the first one Esau's going to meet is them. And then he takes Leah and her children and puts them in the middle. And then he takes Rachel, the one he really loves, with the children that he really loves, and he keeps them back with him. Favored status was demonstrated in so many different ways that we probably don't even understand it. But here it is being demonstrated again, even in the way that they're going home. And the text wants us to pick up on this because verse 1 draws our attention to something that we should immediately ask, why did he say that? Verse 1 says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah. Why didn't it just say one of his daughters? But it's drawing out that he's saying, but this daughter, Dinah, she is an unfavored daughter of an unfavored wife. Pay attention to that as you read the rest of the story. That's what verse 1 says right there. The text wants us to note that. 
Now, one of Leah's children gets in trouble, and his response is no response because he doesn't have a response because it's not one of his children that he's interested in. It's not one of his favorite children. His silence in verse 5 should be expected for someone who's, who's unconnected to the child. It's like reading news about somebody that you don't even know. Gosh, that's unfortunate. Hope that doesn't happen to one of Rachel's kids. His silence should be expected because he has such a disconnect and no affection for her. So in, in verses 7 and 31, in both cases, all the sons, they're the ones who do all the, the, all the negotiation. And matter of fact, in the very last verse of the passage, the sons are rebuking the father there. They're not trying to convince him to behave a certain way. They're not con- trying to convince him for why they did. That text is more about rebuking him. You would let them treat our sister like a whore? It's not a convincing tone. It is a rebuking tone. But the interesting thing is this, is that Rabbi Froman points out that Jacob probably felt the same bitter rejection that Leah's children are experiencing. That Jacob understood what it meant, what it felt like to be the unloved child. But it didn't change the way he behaved. Jacob knew what it was like to have the father love Esau more. So Jacob wants justice for that favoritism, and he takes it deceitfully. He and his mother to take what Jacob wanted and deceive the father and gain the birthright or the blessing. And now years later, Jacob is treating his children the way he was treated, and they are seeking justice just like Jacob sought justice, deceitfully. It's wrong that they've treated my sister this way, and so I will, make, I will create justice where it does not exist. My father won't dispense it, so we will do it ourselves, and we will do it like our father does it, deceitfully. There's, there, this is where the story of Dinah fits in. It's at a point that transitions from the issues of favoritism with Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Rebekah and deceit and all of that being a characteristic of Jacob's where his children are behaving the same way. So do you see, if you're kind of watching a progression, the story is like Jacob has been the unfavored son and now Jacob has favored sons and in all of this, he has been deceitful. It's all about Jacob doing this. And this chapter here, It's not Jacob being deceitful. It's not Jacob necessarily being the favorite son. Now it is his children are deceitful. And you see how that favored nature, that favored child thing has transitioned and taken root in them. And if you know the story, if you you pay attention, you know that the next thing that comes up in Genesis is the favored son of Joseph, the son of the many colored coats and how the brothers respond to him. This chapter is important because it's transitioning from the parents' behavior into the children's behavior and how that happens when all that comes together with Jacob and his children just a few years down the road. But let's extract something from this that we can go home with and to consider as we go through the week. When we started this chapter, we knew nothing about Simeon and Levi. All we knew that they were born to Leah. Way back in Padamaran. We knew where they were born, we knew who they were born to, and that's all. But it was the circumstances. It was the horrible things that happened to Dinah that told us who they are. Years and years and years ago, 
when we bought our house um, downstairs in, in, our, in that room, there, they had this, this like dry bar in there and this big wooden thing behind it and it had a mirror back there. And when they showed us the house, I said, would you like the mirror? You could have it. And we said, and it's a nice mirror. It's big, you know, sure, we'll take it and all. So we took the mirror. And then a few years later, we're doing some remodeling and moving some things around and all. And we take the mirror off the wall, and there was a giant hole behind the mirror. (laughs) The circumstances in this chapter removed the mirror off the wall to see what's behind it and the lives of these young men. These circumstances stripped the mask off. These circumstances revealed who they really were. Hard times do that to us as well. Difficult times, difficult circumstances. And it doesn't have to be some kind of terrible tragedy. It can just simply be difficulty at work. Just the normal routine of life that's hard. That it begins to reveal who we really are inside. And so circumstances, they they remove the mirrors off the wall, they take the masks off. But it's these hard times, they strip the mask off of us, and who we are really comes out. But really what happens is there are two things that they reveal. Number one, they reveal where we need to grow. Uh, The often overused example of traffic, traffic demonstrates where we need to grow a lot. Because when we respond in an ungodly way to someone on the road, it reveals, I need to grow in this area. But it also reveals how we've grown. And so in talking with many of you, and so often I'll be sitting down with you, and your faith, your faith shames me because I don't know if my faith would be the same way. One that I can speak about publicly, and she's not here so I can do it, and, all, and, and she doesn't mind, we've talked about it, is like right now we're watching the faith of Linda Brescia being played out. So she goes through chemotherapy, and she goes through cancer. She continues to cling to Christ, and she continues to say, this will be for good, and God is good no matter what. This is a situation where this circumstance has demonstrated what her faith is like. And they don't all have to be that dramatic. It can also be just be as simple as traffic that demonstrates that we have to grow. But circumstances reveal where we need to grow, and how we're growing. So this morning, I just put forth to you, this past week, has circumstances revealed to you how you need to grow? This past week, have circumstances revealed to you that you're growing well? Right now, these circumstances are revealing to me <laughs> that I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm doing all right. Yeah, yeah. I think we're, I think we're good. I think we're really good. Amen. Amen. And you know what? That would be something uh, you know, that never happens in this church, so it's not a big deal, all right? <laughs> but but this week, as you go through your week, though, be looking for these pressure points where, like, all of a sudden, you like go, "Man, this is exactly where I need to grow." I can see it because of what's God's because of this circumstance. Also, the thing is to do is to rejoice when you feel like what's happened is is you see that. That you go, I, I see that God has given me peace in this circumstance. That's a good thing. That's what you're looking for. All right? Let's pray, okay? It's been a good morning. And, and that is no issue at all to me. So don't make that an issue at all, folks. That was, that was more fun than it was worth, all right?
That might be the highlight of this sermon, actually. So uh, people are like going, hey, the sermon was terrible till the very end. Let's pray, okay? Thank you, Father, very much for this good day. We thank you very much for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you very much for your goodness through your word. And we thank you that your word is never lost, that it is never wasted, that it always has intent in it, that um, you are using it to, to teach us, to motivate us, to draw attention to your spirit and to, your, um, and to our lives and the way that you want to melt the two together. And, um, and Father, so even in this story of this horrible tragedy, even in this story of people who respond negatively and respond horribly, we can learn from those situations. And it's really great. It's really exciting to see how your word fits together. So I thank you for people who are able to help us see that. So this morning, Father, as we go through our week, we encourage us when we see how circumstances reveal how we've grown. As we go through this week, encourage us to reveal where we need to grow. And may we be encouraged that your spirit is alive and well in us and demonstrating that to us and pointing that out to us. Because if you're not a loving father, you'd just let us play in the highway and not worry about it. But you are a loving father. And when we do have these failures, you point them out to us. Because you love us and you want to help us grow through them. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, great.